Blog Talk Radio. information 
uh, from our panelists, and and I'm sure those of you who will uh, decide and choose to to call in and and give us your insight and and, and uh, comments uh, are certainly welcome to do that. Uh, we're looking forward to just allowing ourselves to understand exactly what's going on and what's at stake, and that's why I decided tonight because this week. So much has been coming up and so much has been talked about and so much has been said that I, I, I think I needed to play the Wake Up Everybody uh, uh, song, as I sometimes do on the radio broadcast. And for those of you who join us on the radio tonight, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. And for those of you who are watching us live on StreamYard right here at uh, BlackPoliticsToday.com and Black Politics Today Facebook, we uh, thank you for joining us and, and welcome to another time of... Uh, Insightful dialogue. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I want to first uh, thank, uh, again, my panelists, because each and every week when we reach out to them, they're more than happy and glad to, to join us either on the radio broadcast or here on the It's About Us town hall series. Um, and I'm just excited and glad that uh, they continue to be supportive of Black Politics Today from the talk show to the uh, town halls and the Black Politics Today magazine that uh, uh, our latest issue just went out uh, last week and uh, some uh, redistribution this afternoon and and yesterday. So I'm excited about that as well and and wanna thank everyone. And then of course my support support staff, especially Brian Smith who runs this show and runs the broadcast of this and Cliff uh, Rogers who's also very supportive and making sure that they get everything that we're trying to do right so that it can work out for us all and everything works out good. As I noted in my email to my panelists, there's so much happening right now that I really wanted to just talk about, you know, current events and what's going on because it's crazy out there, folks. It is so crazy. It's, it's out of control. And I, I'm quite, I'm not quite sure how to address it uh, without just being frustrated about it all. And without being, you know, really upset about it all. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we, we, we try to do and we want to make sure that we put together. And so certainly I want to thank, uh, thank uh, uh, them, uh, my staff and the panelists, and then, of course, you who tune in each and every week. The current events, as I said, if, if you have been watching for the last three years, uh, three and a half years, and certainly in the last two to three weeks, the current events have certainly exposed the clear and present danger for black America. I mean, if you don't see it and, and you can't recognize it, there is literally something wrong with you. I mean, there's a few choice words I might have for you, but the reality of it is, is that when, it, it, when we look at this, if we don't catch this as black folks, if we don't catch this as black America, literally we will be, left behind, we'll be set back. It will literally be worse off in 2021 than it was for us in 1886, 1896, 1920, 1940, 1960. It's going to be a catastrophe in my opinion. Black America, we are at a moment of truth where we literally need to recognize and understand who we are as a community, who we are as a people, and what we're going to do. Because sitting on our behinds is not going to work. It didn't work then, and it sure as hell ain't going to work now. I mean, Trump nominated on Saturday a judge that has publicly, I mean, 
scorned the chief justice from her own party, a Republican, right? Um, put that up, Brian. Um, she, she um, you know, we, we're, we're looking at this whole idea of the Affordable Care Act and what it's going to mean. 50,000 African-Americans, I mean, nearly 25% have died. And it is going to be serious, serious issues with this particular judge because she's already said she's going to get rid of uh, the Affordable Care Act. She said she's going to get rid of it. She don't. She didn't like it. It was wrong. Uh, he made the wrong decision. All this stuff. And an individual who has already expressed her public views about something like that, and now is being considered for the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, after only being on the bench for three years, and under normal circumstances, would not have even been considered because of her record. And she's going to be the youngest justice on the bench at 48 years old. So we got 30 years, a minimum, unless something happens, of hell to deal with based on her rulings. We can think about Clarence Thomas. That's pretty much what we got, but we have it just far, far worse than I think we did. And the impact of COVID-19 on our community has devastated us to, to, to such a degree that our children can't go back to school. Um, their ability to learn and be taught properly is impacted. Um, just the idea of us, you know, having what they're calling now is a pre, pre-existing condition under COVID-19 because of just the, the, the things that, um, you know, linger on with that, with this virus, you have that. So impact on our education system because of COVID, impact on our health system because of COVID, and now impact of both of those because of this judge, uh, or potentially, and What's down the line? We got the election in 35 days. And what can happen from that? So literally, everything is at stake for us. Literally, everything should be something that we should be focused on, paying attention to, and worried about. And my panelists tonight, I'm excited to have them. I'm grateful to have them. Uh, We're going to discuss that. Because one of the other things I want to talk about is for us thinking about and imagining, given the circumstances, what if we decided and what if we came together, our individual families, collectively, our organizations and our groups, and decided to do um, the idea of creating and recreating our Black Wall Street? What if we decided to go back and do something and do something that was historic by creating our recreating the Rosewood, buying up land, buying up property, you know, do something like that? Being able to do so, establishing our own economic infrastructure so we can address our own health care issues, so we can address education so we can address jobs, so we can address those things. And then what if we had black five-star athletes, blue chippers, decide to attend historically black colleges, black colleges and universities instead of the PWCs, instead of the Kentuckys and, and all those schools? What if we had our athletes uh, decide to attend HBCUs and then maybe we decided to go ahead and quasi-create our own little NCAA of our HBCUs. If Black America decided to do that, what would become of Black America? What would happen? Because Black America, on November 3rd, it's about us. Joining me tonight to share their wisdom insight is Nevada State Speaker of the Assembly, Representative Jason Fireson. 
Also joining me, coming back for us, who's been on the show a long time, a number of years, uh, is law professor and publisher of L.A. Progressive, Sharon Kyle, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Hopkinsville, Kentucky uh, city council member is Dr. Darren Adams. Uh, Darren Adams the first. Also, we have um, joining us from um, the, the first African-American elected sheriff in Durham County, North Carolina, is Sheriff Clarence Burkhead. I want to thank each and every one of them for joining us tonight. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. You guys can meet me on your side. And I also want to bring into the broadcast our good friend who's going to be joining us later in the show. Or is he? No, he's on the show now. There we go. Mr. Bernard Perry. He is a former... Yeah, go ahead. He's, he's a former, he's a former principal, principal at, uh, at Calvary Christian Calvary Academy, Academy and former NBA and, and HBCU college standout for the Washington Bullets as well as for Howard University, uh, Dr. I'm going to give you a title named Dr. Bernard Perry. Uh, we want to welcome him to the show as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm just giving away titles tonight. I'm giving away titles tonight. <laughs> So let me so start with you, Sheriff. Go ahead and, go ahead and, and you guys can you mute guys can me mute on your phone if you have me on phone as we try to make try sure to that make everyone sure can hear us. So, Doctor, no, Sheriff. Let me go to let me go to Speaker Fireson. Speaker Fireson, let me start with you. We got two hundred thousand African Americans or two hundred Americans dead. Two hundred Americans are dead as a result of COVID nineteen. Roughly about 50,000 or 25% of those are African-Americans. Can you address the reality of what we're dealing with um, across this nation and right there in your state of, of, of Nevada? How are we going to be dealing with this, especially considering health disparities, racial disparities, income inequality, the things that are prevalent in our, in our communities? Right.
It, it really has to be that way. Uh, Dr. Adams, um, you're also on the front line there in Kentucky. Uh, what are some of the things that you're dealing with as you look at the, the exacerbation of an already broken system and recognizing that income inequality is, is a, a, a hard hit um, uh, aspect of what happens for African-Americans when we're dealing with health and education and, and just being able to eat right and all the things that we need to do from and, and economic instability and how this has increased our poverty rates and increased a lot of the, the things that go on in our community. What are you seeing there in Kentucky um, as you look at and deal with uh, this health uh, pandemic? First of all, Mr. Keller Williams, thank you so much for having me to our esteemed uh, panelists, those who are listening in, so on and so forth. Um, I want to say from the outset that my background is in theology. I hold a Ph.D. in systematic theology from Northwestern University in Chicago. And even though I'm a, quote, unquote, country boy from Hopkinsville, <laughs> Kentucky, I'm active in both the black church and in the black community in terms of political leadership on the Hopkinsville City Council. To answer your question uh, in brief, you know, it, it's debilitating. It's even more oppressive now than it's ever been, both politically, socially, economically, educationally, psychologically, socially, so on and so forth. You know, the combination of COVID-19 and, and demonic idolatry that's being led, the White House in Washington has, has done great harm to, to black and brown communities. And, and, and so what I'm seeing is, is, is that it, it, this, this debilitating reality, this oppressive reality where black folk and and other poor minorities are concerned, um, we're, 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 we're seeing it heightened. It, it's growing. It, it's amplified. It's becoming bigger and better. Hold on one second, uh, Dr. Adams. Dr. Adams, hold on one second, because we're not able to, to hear you. Uh, let me okay. see what's, what's happening and uh, how we can fix that. I'm going I'm to come right back to you and make sure that we can try to fix that and, and get you on live with us here, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. All right, let me come back. Let me come to you, Sharon, um, and, and, and talk to you about it, because you, more than anyone, I think, also in, in the education uh, field there in L.A., know the disparities that are going on um, and looking at uh, how L.A. is dealing with it. How do, how do we see this extreme uh, uh, issue? Because when you're looking at infection rates and you're looking at the, the, the rates and uh, folks dying and then how this impacts our education system, and impacts our economic system and where we're going to be left out, especially after this uh, November election. Where, where do you think public policy needs to move to so that it can address some of these issues um, with the idea that uh, Joe Biden is probably being, will be in office to do that? Because certainly we know this president cares nothing about this virus. Yeah, Prop 209. Right. We believe that 
Exactly. Um, I think I said that on one of my shows where uh, I made mention that once the records and the numbers came out that it was African-Americans who were being impacted the greatest, that it then became this idea, well, open back up the cities, open back up the states. Uh, We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to worry about that. It was one of those things where they were completely uh, void of any way or any action of trying to say they're going to do something about it. Um, and Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Burkhead, uh, let me come to you because in North Carolina, there was, uh, there has been an uptick in your county of COVID cases. Um, and I remember when we talked probably back in May and June, uh, you had literally nobody, no person in your detention center sick. None of the detainees were sick. And I think you only had maybe one employee uh, who had uh, tested positive and, and you had taken care of that. But now you've gotten a, a point where now your county has had an uptick and, and you know, you've, you've had to deal with uh, a, a number of cases. What more can you do given the lack of national leadership and given the confusion coming out of the CDC? How are you able to keep Durham safe and, and keep your inmates and your, your, your staff uh, uh, safe and, and uh, productive? Wow. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I do remember the, the one case that you did have and uh, the one instance of, of one of your, your staff and employees who had been there, I think, uh, 20 years or 20 plus years. So um, I, I remember us having that conversation and I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to bring you in, uh, uh, Mr. Perry, because uh, I, I, I want to get your uh, insight and input. When you think about it from a, 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 a layperson's point of view of, of just not having to deal with it from a public policy side of things, not having to do, deal with it from uh, a first responder side of things, but just the everyday life of what you have to go through. What does this, what has this virus done uh, to you and, and changing how you actually deal with things and, and the where, and where you go with things, uh, uh, Bernard, how, how does it, how does it change how you live your life? Can you hear me, Mr. Perry? I don't. I don't think he's got it. Uh, Speaker Fireson, how 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 does it how has it changed you? Uh, even though you deal with from a public policy standpoint, how has it changed you just in your daily life of what you're doing? Thank you. 
Sheriff, go ahead and speak to that because that that was something that I was gonna um, gonna ask you once he he mentioned it about when we look at the fact that this 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 individual in 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 sixteen hundred has done absolutely nothing for this, and now we're having these cases increase, and I'm sure in our community it's you know ten times as much as in any other community. What, how, how are you reacting and responding to that and, and what's happening? Sharon, when I mean thinking about that, I, I I think about Flint, Michigan, and and the water crisis and the water issue that they had, and and I know they're replacing some of the pipes, but the reality of it is this: is that you got two million Americans who don't have water, clean water, or running water, and you think about that at this time and how those kids are having to deal with that, and then how that will then escalate into the 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 school issue of them being stuck at home, not having uh, any access to clean water, to running water, no education. And like the sheriff said, and like the speaker said, you, you, you need that social activity of being out there. What exactly, what exactly are you going to be able to do so that you can uh, uh, address those type of issues when you don't have the access to it? I mean, those disparities are akin to not being able to eat breakfast in the morning and going to school. How do parents and families begin to deal with something like that? Right. 
Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm still going to try to get you on, uh, Dr. Adams, and uh, uh, Brian's helping me to work that out for you. So stand by, please. Um, uh, speaker, pol- public policy-wise, what is it that you guys are able to do there in Nevada, and what do you think should be done nationwide, especially given that if this judge is confirmed, as, as we all know that she will be, um, unless some, you know, a miracle happens, um, and the ACA will be overturned. What is it that 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 public policy wise that we should be looking at, looking for, or advocating for, to to try to make sure that you know uh, um, responses and and treatments can continue even after January? Right.
wave and the weather turns down and all of a sudden we're indoors again, um, I think that there's a, there's a good likelihood that we're going to have an uptick and we have to be ready. This is going to be here for a while um, and, and we have to start to develop the infrastructure to deal with it. Good. Uh, I'm going to, uh, Dr. Adams, I'm going to see if, if we can get you back in here and, and if uh, you can hear me. Can you hear me, Dr. Adams? Yes, sir. Can you hear me, Mr. Kelly? I can. I can. And uh, hopefully our, our, we can all hear you uh, clearly. Um, I, I, was, I, was, I was asking you, like, how are things working there in Kentucky and what happens uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, how you guys are dealing with that, uh, dealing with the situation, and where are you in dealing with the, the COVID-19 and how it's impacting the school kids? as well as how it's impacting just our community and as, as a whole in general? Yeah, the totality of the situation here um, in Kentucky, Kelly, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, as, as we stated earlier and throughout uh, our conversation this evening is that the combination of the COVID-19 pandemic along with, you know, the foolishness and the demonic idolatry and the evil and so on and so forth is going on in the White House and throughout the country. You know, it, it's had a profound effect on brown and black, brown and black communities, um, educationally, socially, politically, economically, psychologically. And so and as I am a member of, of the city council here in Hopkinsville, I also pastor a church here in Hopkinsville in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church tradition. So I, I, I kind of try to keep my eyes on what, what's going on in the spirit realm and also politically as well. I can tell you all, it's just devastating. It's a devastating reality. Of course, you all know that the state of Kentucky is part of the old school Jim Crow. Um, it's a state that has not voted red probably uh, in a hundred years. Uh, we do have some good Democrats. We've got some good Republicans as well, Kelly, but it's just difficult to navigate because there's so many different things going on at the same time and all of which are doing destructive harm to, to black folk. So um, I, 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 the school system here is struggling real bad. We're doing the virtual learning, distance learning model, and, and it, it has some strengths and some weaknesses. Uh, a, a large constituency of people here in Kentucky refuse to wear masks um, at, at, at the leadership of our president. Hence, there's a, a, a sharp increase in the number of people who are uh, testing positive, a sharp increase in the number of people, Kelly, whom have, have, have died as a result of COVID-19. So like I said, it's just a difficult, difficult process to navigate on several different fronts, in particularly the economic front and the educational front as well. And, and that's where I want to move to, especially uh, the education side, but well, both the economic and the education, because I think with the, the economic side of things, uh, we might be able to create some things and some changes on the education side of things um, and, and looking at that because I, I certainly want to, to take and make and, and, and take note of the idea that you got 30 million Americans unemployed. The, a, a whole number of them are, are African-American, right? So, you know, 30 million people are unemployed. Uh, we already know that 23, 24% of the people who are dying of COVID are African-American. Uh, the fact that our kids are being, you know, uh, kept at home from school, if we're not in a particular school district, a particular city, 
uh, we don't have the, the broadband, the Wi-Fi. We don't have the capacity to be able to even have our kids learning from home. And or we're dealing with the fact that you only have one computer uh, at the house, but you have two or three kids at the house, and they're all trying to learn from the same device because their particular school, because of funding, has not provided and hasn't given them the uh, 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 tools to be able to, you know, just be able to go and say, they can pick this up and, and have it. So you, you, don't, you don't have that available to them. So now you're dealing with all those things. And I want to be able to, I want to try to transition into the idea of being able to look at how we take, I, I opened up the, the, the town hall with the idea of us creating our own black community, recreating Black Wall Street, trying to do a Rosewood and, and trying to do that. And in Georgia, you had 19 families that decided to do just that. They raised uh, $1.2 million and they went out and bought a hundred acres outside of uh, Atlanta. And when they, when they we did that, and, and many of you know that I, I, my last town hall, we talked about Black Wall Street. We talked about redesigning or redeveloping or reestablishing a Black Wall Street across the country in our communities. Uh, that was exactly what our last town hall was about. The economics of of, of the policies and the issues impacting African-Americans. And so when I saw this article, this article was sent to me, I, I got excited because I said, if we can do this, and, and Sharon, you and I remember, we talked about this, with, I think, with uh, Dr. Wilmer. I said, Wilmer, can we do this? And he said, yeah, you can do it with your family, get your church together, get this, get this, and you guys can do it. And then the next day, I got this article that came out, and I thought about it. I said, what if, what, what, let's, let's hypothesize, let's, let's, could a theory together? What if we as a black folk, uh, as a black community, do what we used to do back when we were slave and when we were just coming out of slavery under reconstruction, we put it all together and we kept it all in our community and we built our community. This particular place right here in Georgia is unincorporated. So now they're going to create their own city, get their own city, and they're going to call it Freedom Georgia, uh, which I thought was amazing. Looking at it from that standpoint and, and, and moving forward, and, and, and thinking about it, if we were to do something like that, could we, is it possible to be able to then build our own schools, create our own school system, create our own uh, uh, health care, uh, not necessarily health care system. We can use the, you know, Medicaid and Medicare, but we have our own hospitals. We have our own uh, clinics, our own facilities where we can make sure and ensure that our community our black community, our kids, our grandkids, our nieces, nephews, and everybody else will always have the ability to have access to that that they don't necessarily get right now on an equal playing field or equal level. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm saying that because if I think about it from uh, education or school standpoint, if we can create our own education system, we won't have kids who are having struggling issues, struggling in school right now where they get disinterested or they decide that they don't want to go into school or they don't want to deal with it because sheriff, there is a pipeline to prisons. There is that reality that we have to deal with. And so when we look at that and we, and we address that and we come about that, it's something that's like, Oh, you know, what, what is it? What, what's out there? Where, where are you? What's, what's happening? So let me, let me uh, 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 bring in, um, Mr. Perry, uh, you got your sound together for us, sir. Uh, let me talk to you as a, as a principal, a former principal, as a parent, 
What are your thoughts on establishing an education system, not just for school or not just schools and us, you know, running schools or owning schools, but a whole education system to eliminate the race educational structure that's already been put in place? Well, I think we have the, uh, the, the knowledge base in place as people of color. Um, it's just us getting together, um, uh, uh, the, the, the haves and the have-nots getting together to uh, put something like that together in terms of from an educational standpoint, building our own schools. Um, but, but even more than that, Kelly, until we're able to do that, we as parents, uh, I am a parent, grandparent, uh, we have to hold the people we have in place now for in our educational systems, those who are making the laws, the principals, the superintendents, and, and, and local government accountable for our kids. Uh, I heard the panel talking about uh, the, the, the struggles that, that people of color are having in the school system when, 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 when you got homes that don't have uh, the internet access, even though they may have a laptop, but they don't have enough laptops um, and, and things of that nature. And, and, and a lot of us don't know about that. We, we, we see the county that I'm in currently in Maryland, uh, you know, we, we, they're giving out the, the, the uh, laptops and things of that nature. But, but a lot of kids don't have, you may have a single mom at home who has to go to work and you, she has more than one child, so that child, so we have to be creative in, in how we uh, go about doing that. And, but I believe we have the resources within our communities, our large communities, uh, to, to get something like that started. Uh, and I think that was a great uh, leeway that you did for the 19 families that started their own community are in the process of starting their own community down in uh, Wilkins County, Georgia, I believe. So I believe it's something that can be done. It's just a matter of fact of getting us together to get it done. Uh, Speaker Speaker Frierson, what about that? Policy-wise and and, and looking at uh, education, where do we go? Because the, the education system that we have in America is not equal. It's not set for us. Um, I say it all the time. I say it on the show. If I can't, every show I have, this system was not built for us. We were three-fifths of a person. We were property. So they didn't expect that we was actually going to be able to get out and live. They thought we was going to be slave forever. So now that we're not, we still have to deal with that structure. So what, what, what public policy-wise can we do or deal with there in Nevada and across the country? Well, you know, Nevada is an interesting state because uh, – we, we, we have a lot of influence here, a lot of folks coming, folks coming and going. Uh, you know, we're less than 10% African-American as a state. Uh, I, I think what's different today than years ago when we, we had a movement where African-Americans um, were, were, you know, the, the Black Wall Street. I, I think what we have different now is uh, the ability to reach out not only beyond our, our, our community lines, our state lines, our country's lines. I think that uh, our economy now is an international one and we have uh, internet capabilities to, to be able to, to rely on that. But what, what we're seeing is an appropriation of black culture that we've never seen before to, the, to this degree, not only in this country, but across uh, the world. And so it's popular now. 
Hip hop has taken off. I think black culture, not just hip hop, R&B, uh, food, uh, hair, style. I think everything is starting to expand. So while I think it's wonderful for us from a policy perspective to create an infrastructure where uh, minority-owned business and women-owned businesses can can get a start, that we can be put on a competitive level uh, with other other businesses and industries that have had generations of an advantage. But I think that we need to to look at, for example, the educational system. Um, and I am not, you know, I, I'm perfectly fine with uh, a broad cultural education system so long as we incorporate our history and our contributions in it, in it so that we're not only teaching each other, our own kids and our kids, our history and our value and our contributions, but that we're teaching other, other cultures that we are valuable and, and uh, that we contribute to what we have today. Uh, I am encouraged by what I see in social media when I see so many people who don't look like me standing up for this cause. I've never seen it to this degree. And while we can't depend on it, um, I think that we have to continue to advocate for our own communities and our own families. Uh, I, I think that the benefit of expanding that to make sure that we're incorporating our culture and our contributions um, into the education system for everybody is what's going to change the next generation. Right now, you have uh, you know, you have racists, you have, you know, folks that don't embrace culture, that don't embrace Black Lives Matter, but you have the children who do. And I think that that's what we can't lose sight of because what we need to do is expand it so that the next generation recognizes how immoral where we're going right now, and certainly under under this uh, uh, White House administration, where we're going, and that we have to reverse that and go in a different direction. And I think we don't have to do it together. I think that we can do it. But I think that it will last and we will expand our ability to grow if we do it in a way that recognizes the value in those relationships outside of our own culture, so long as they embrace ours. Well, I, I agree. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's always been my opinion that everybody's wanted to be like us all the time, every time. I mean, especially style and, and, and music. And, you know, you, you have, you know, you know, suburban white boys, you know, riding in low riders with they with the the forty inch speakers in their trunk, booming louder than you got the brothers doing it. I mean, come on now, so, you know, they they all around, so they they doing it. And uh, and I mean, the, the fact that you can have a, a I can't think of her name right now, um, and uh, wanting to be black and, and change herself, and so she can get into Howard and go to Howard, and and now you have a professor at, at American University who's been claiming she's been black for 20 years and, and as white as the, the darn wall. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, how do you do this? But yet you're discriminating against us. You want to be us, but you don't want us to be able to have the access that you have because you can easily switch it whenever you want to and decide that, oh, I'm white here, but I want to be black over here. You know, let me bring in, um, she is the uh, former uh, CEO of Paul Public Charter School. And she is the current Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer at KIPP DC, one of DC's charter enterprises. And this is uh, Jamie Dunham. Uh, she's joining us uh, tonight as well. Jamie, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. Good evening. All right, great, great. Thanks for joining us and thank you for helping me out tonight and, and joining us because I wanted to get the, the charter school aspect of, of what we're doing and talk to you about that because uh, the idea and the premise, as I as I shared with you, you weren't able to join us earlier, but uh, uh, a group in in Los and Georgia uh, purchased a uh, uh, hundred acres of land and they're going to build their own city. 
and my my theory and question and, and topic was if we were to take advantage of that, if, if, if black folks across the country decide to get with their family and go back to, to Georgia's, North Carolina's, Maryland's, wherever it is, um, and purchase land and be able to build our city and build a community, how different and how much more um, equitable would it be for us to then be able to establish our own school system, our own education system, not just running the schools or, or, or being in charge of the schools, but actually having a system created for us and our children and how impactful that would be as we eliminate the disparities or could we eliminate the disparities and being able to teach our children so that we have kids who aren't interested, who learn in different aspects or different ways, how can we impact them uh, if we're able to create our own system coming out of that charter school and using the charter school programs, because as I remember back when I was bringing my son to Paul, uh, the charter schools, they, uh, especially here in DC, you were able to start a charter school pretty much in, in, you know, anywhere you wanted to and teach almost anything you wanted to, and you're getting state dollars from it. Um, so talk to me about that. How, how impactful could that be for our community? Well, I think um, the charter movement um, definitely has a space for um, those that want to start their own, make their own decisions, develop their own curriculum. One misnomer, though, is that um, that many, uh, I'm glad you pointed out, that many forget about is the fact that charter schools are public schools, and so they receive public funding. So there's right. a lot of autonomy around, again, curriculum, who you hire, um, what your day looks like, um, but you still receive public dollars, and so that means that there's still some accountability. Um, and what, the era that we're in right now is this high-stake testing accountability. So the, the idea that charters um, could exist um, outside of this institution um, that is still tied to federal dollars is still where the trickiness uh, lies. Now, I think um, there's still power in us designing a program that affirms our kids, and I think the opportunity for us to design a program that is for a different purpose. Um, the purpose of schooling for, for decades um, has been, you know, was preparing workers. Um, and uh, perhaps some may want to say that the purpose of schools now is, you know, for to, to continue democracy. I think one question we're grappling with is how can the purpose of schools be, especially for um, populations of color, be really about liberation, um, which, again, is super hard to do unless you disrupt some of the traditional systems we've had in place. And many of those systems are still tied to dollars that um, make it very difficult to do uh, without them to make it very difficult to do some of the basic things you would want to do in a school. Um, but I think the concept is um, one that would lead us in the right direction. Um, I think we've had examples of that with charter founders um, that are black that ha were thinking about designing uh, and implemented designing a, a, a program that validates and affirms our kids, um, that puts in front of them text. Uh, literature that represent, you know, our intellects, our great authors, um, and, and really moving away from a Eurocentric um, curriculum. 
Uh, but the tricky part is trying to do something like this still within an institution that is built on um, racist practices. And so that's where we have to have our counterparts um, along with us that are disrupting um, and that have committed to being um, anti-racist practitioners as well. So I think it's possible. I think it's, a, I think it's great to consider. Um, but we'd have to do some more disrupting um, as it relates to, to making sure those dollars also are there to support us. Sheriff Burkett, uh, she she talks about that 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 system, that structure that we're talking about, and, and where it is, and thinking about it from the standpoint of, of what I mentioned that 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 pipeline that that goes from the school to the prison, and the idea that from you know that testing that she also mentioned, you know the third and fourth graders, you know they they start testing them then and figuring out exactly if they're on grade level, if they're not on grade level, if they're not on grade level, then they start building prisons based on how many people ain't on grade level and where they're going to go. And then they come up and end up in your facility. Talk to us about that, that, that structure and how we end up seeing you rather than seeing Speaker Fireson, where we could be doing much better seeing him and Sharon and, and Perry and, and Dr. Adams rather than coming to see you. No, it's a great question, and let me just say so much, so many great comments have been made here, and I'm sitting here on, on pins and needles wanting to jump in. Jump in uh, anytime. <laughs> Anybody, jump in anytime. You got a comment, just come on and say it. So, so what I'll say to that, you're absolutely correct. What we need to do is really to see more people like the men and women you have on this panel, like myself, the first African-American sheriff of Durham County, so we can begin to reform the, the system. I heard Ms. Sharon uh, say earlier, let's not talk about defunding, but let's talk about reframing, and I like to use the term of reimagining uh, law enforcement, and I do support criminal justice reform. I've been, a, I've been a cop. I've been a law enforcement professional for 36 years, uh, and yes, I'll be the first one to stand out front and say the system is broken. The system is unfair. And we need individuals like the collective on this call tonight to get in these positions and start making the changes that we know desperately need to be made. And as it relates to our schools, the first thing I did uh, in taking office was get with my school superintendent, uh, and we talked about the SRO program. I'm an advocate of keeping the SROs in schools, but here we go. Let's reimagine what the SROs do, how they interact with our kids day in and day out. Uh, let's just not focus on the adversarial relationship. Huge failures with SRO programs, but let's let's flip it upside on its head. Let's 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 flip the script on them, as the as the young folks say, and really talk about building relationships at grade three grade four, grade five, and talking to them about good citizenship and, and, and just really becoming partners in the educational process and, 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 and not the adversaries that, that uh, many, many schools have made the SROs out to be. So that's what we're doing here in, in Durham County. There's been a push here to remove the SROs. Uh, I, along with the superintendent, are pushing back because we have great SROs we have great relationships. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me interrupt you right there, yeah. Sheriff, because, I mean, as an African-American male and knowing what's happening in the school system and, and, and seeing how SROs are, are, have been treating, how do you balance that? Because I know 
I, I have a law enforcement background, my, my father, my brother, and, and the, the, but there's a reality. Once I left the force, I was just another brother on the street. You know, I really wanted to say, but I, you know, I, I'm on, I, you know, I'm trying to be nice. I'm, I'm just that, 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 that boy on the street. So how do you deal with that? Because you've been in this business 30 years. Now you're the sheriff. Now you control the county. And I'm sure you're getting a lot of pushback from black folks saying, no, they need to be out because they just beat up my kid last week. Right. And, and, and the way I approach that, that situation, I get it all the time. You're absolutely correct. Uh, just like I say, not everyone can wear this uniform, wear this badge, and be the police or be a deputy sheriff. And there are specialties within law enforcement, and SRO is a specialty. Mm-hmm. You can't just stick a jarhead off the street and put them in a school. So we have a very strict uh, selection process. There's mandatory statewide training. There's reevaluation. We have an early warning system to see if, if too many complaints are coming in or if the behavior's uh, not quite where it should be. We immediately pull that SRO out of the schools. So it's up to the superintendent. It's up to the supervisors. And ultimately, it's up to the sheriff to make sure we have the right men and women working with our kids uh, while they're in school. And our ultimate goal is to keep that educational environment safe and secure. Again, not to be the disciplinarians. When when you have a kid that's acting out in class, don't call the SRO. We need to empower our teachers and our principals and our, right. our, our teacher aides to handle that situation unless it becomes violent or threatening or things of that nature. Let me tell you, when I became uh, the sheriff, this immediately we started doing this. 2019 to 2020, we made 14 arrests in school, and the number was triple that previously, okay? 96% of the, our encounters that needed to be referred were referred to the school disciplinary policy. Only 14 arrests, and these were arrests from sexual assault, uh, weapons on campus, threatening, uh, aggravated assaults, and drug dealing. So I'm not talking about someone refusing to pick their head up off, off right. the desk or didn't right. raise their hand to get a, right. a home pass. I, 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 got, I got a video I'm going to show. Not yet, Brian, but I got a video I'm going to show uh, that deals just with that. But I'm going to go back to Jamie real quick because in, in your new position, Jamie, you're dealing with uh, being able to uh, recruit and, and basically deal with um, equities and, and making sure that uh, you're dealing with the, the equities within your school system. Talk to me real quick about that and, and how is that working out and what does that mean for our education system of, of black kids? Yeah, this is something that we're um, really digging into. And essentially our aspiration is to be um, an anti-racist organization that um, educates students in the most diverse and equitable and inclusive environment possible. And so that means we are looking at our uh, reshaping mindset, so of all of our educators, uh, from, you know, from security to teachers to principals to finance folks, everybody, um, not only reshaping mindsets, but um, rethinking our policy lens and our practices. And so if we think about those three things, what does that take? So for us, what we're doing is, for, first of all, it, it, we all have to be uh, um, learners in this. We all have to unpack because we're, we're working in an institution that has been um, racist, that has been inequitable for our kids since the 
conception. It's a conception. Right. And so in right. order to do something different, we have to identify those things that are racist and then disrupt them and then recreate and rebuild. And so that requires all of us to learn. The second thing is as we think about our policies that then drive our practices, um, we have to identify, like, where are those gaps? Um, as we look at some of the policies around, like, who are we hiring to put in front of our kids? What are the policies right. around um, what classes kids have to take? Um, and then our practices. And so um, just like uh, uh, Sheriff said, uh, a teacher has to be trained um, and have a pedagogy that reflects culturally relevant practices. And so if a student, you know, if, if a student uh, is disrespectful or defiant, well, what does that mean? Is this student frustrated? That's not something right. to get um, an, uh, an officer about. Like, that takes a relationship, and that teacher being trained to build a relationship, a trusting relationship with a student to then be able to unpack frustration and then move on. Um, so we're looking at um, mindsets, practices, policies, and some of the tangible things are curriculum, um, our discipline practices, um, our hiring practices, um, our professional development opportunities for everybody. So those are a few, a few of the things that we're working on. But the big goal is to be able to really disrupt and rebuild um, with equity in mind and making sure that at the center of everything we're doing, because we serve 99% um, black students in, in uh, KPC, and so um, our kids being at the center um, and, and their identities being affirmed and validated all day, every day. Dr. Adams, let me jump in right quick. Go ahead. No, no, she's he's absolutely uh, spot on, and and we teach our SROs and we involve our students in restorative justice practices. So if there's a there's a situation between students, we we have team court, we have uh, restorative uh, justice practices and counselors on hand. Again. Uh, the SRO may be inserted into that situation, but we make sure that our SROs are aware of the resources that are available to our to our students, to our kids, so we, once again, we don't perpetuate that school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, and all of our deputies here, I'm sorry, 69% of our deputies here are CIT certified, so they recognize when a, a young man or a young woman are going through a crisis where they have been traumatized at home or on the street or even at school. Uh, so we spend a lot of time trying to connect with these young people so that we can sort of understand or detect when their behavior has shifted and drill down a little bit deeper uh, to find out why and then refer them to the proper resources. So uh, absolutely spot on. Just wanted to jump in on that. That's fine. Can, 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 I, can I jump in here? Please, go ahead. Yeah, so I want to, this conversation, it's a great conversation, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for everybody that's on this call, but what we've been doing is discussing symptoms of a much deeper problem, and, and the problem really is directly connected to economics. You know, back in 1971, there was a, Supreme, a future Supreme Court justice who wrote a memo to the, um, to the uh, Chamber of Commerce. In 1971, a chief, a, a Justice uh, Lewis Powell, he wasn't a justice at the time, it was in two, two weeks after he wrote the memo, he, he did become a justice. But he was very, he was a, um, a right-wing conservative who was disturbed about the victories from the civil rights era. He was disturbed about the victories from the anti-Vietnam War protesters, the women's movement, 
the Equal Rights Amendment, the Voting Rights Amendment. He was he thought that America was on the wrong track, and he wrote a memo indicating how to get America back on the right track. And if you were to look at his memo, and anybody can Google this memo, it's called the Powell Memo. It's an eight-page treaty. Yeah talks about how the conservative movement can undo the victories that we had in the 60s and the early 70s. And they've done just that. So now all of us here are sitting around having a conversation about the, um, the symptoms of this deep, dark illness, which is to take away the power of the people, to put that power in the hands of multinational corporations, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, we didn't have any law enforcement officers in our public schools. We didn't have a situation where both parents had to work and it was impossible to, it, or it was impossible to even have an apartment. Here in Southern California, the average person, the, the average apartment is, is like, I, I think it might be $2,500 a month. So the kinds of things that you're talking about where we have to have law enforcement in the school, we're characterizing students as being defiant. All of these are symptomatic of much deeper economical issues in this country. And until we address those, until we address those, we will forever be um, on the outskirts trying to clean up the symptoms. It's like having cancer and only addressing the symptoms of the cancer, but not getting radiation or chemo, or only getting Band-Aids. We gotta look at the symptoms. And that's, and that's what I was talking about when I when, when we addressed the, the whole idea of recreating Black Wall Street or having the economics or developing that economic structure. Dr. Adams, you had you wrote an article in our June issue of Black Politics Today magazine, and it's a very good article, and I encourage everyone to uh, go check out that article, read that article, subscribe to Black Politics Today uh, magazine at blackpoliticstoday.com, and uh, click on the magazine issue, get your, your, your uh, annual subscription. Um, in that article, you um, talked about you. One of the quotes you made, you said, "It can be argued with dem- dem- demonstrative certainty that education is an issue of Black political significance. When classroom teachers, academic counselors, school principals, community college instructors, college professors, and program administrators take every opportunity to keep our young people away from intellectual development and educational environment." Uh, the de-educational environment has turned politically racist. Talk to me about that, and, and given that analysis, what is the impact on black community uh, as a result of that? It's a great question, Kelly, and I want to kind of bring together the moral fabrics of the previous statements that were made in terms of placing great importance on the root causes of racism, root causes of poverty, root causes of economic deprivation, root causes of economic oppression amongst um, black and brown communities in the United States. But for me, Kelly, and I'm going to get there, give me just a few seconds. I, I want to kind of uh, uh, look a little bit deeper is that when, when it comes to, to black folk in the United States, you know, you, you can't talk about education without talking about economics. And you can't talk about economics without talking about education because they are both inextricably intertwined in, to the holistic fabric of black existential life. And so when, when I wrote that, that particular article, I, I was thinking along the lines of the way that, that black folk have, have been mistreated. Um, my background is in theology. I hold a PhD in systematic theology. 
from Northwestern University of Chicago, and uh, my, dissipate, my dissertation was was basically about the, 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 the narrative strand of black poverty in the United States. And so what I was getting at, what I was attempting to argue for the Kelly is that late capitalism, following the end of World War II, on up into the contemporary era, late capitalism has attempted to destroy the existence of black people, whether it be black-on-black crime, police brutality, racism, poverty, political leadership, um, educational advancement, so on and so forth. The totality of every single thing that we experience has has what 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 the white man would consider an inferior uh, uh, people. It, it's all really kind of encapsulized into this reality that 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 we were brought here poor. We've been poor since we've been here, and we've continued to be poor. Whether it's it's post civil rights, the industrial area, um, the agricultural area, post industry. Uh, post-modernity, whatever you look at, at the end of the day, black folk have been pushed back educationally, especially in the public school sector, especially when it comes to funding for, for our schools. Separate is it, not equal. It's been there. It hadn't gone anywhere. The ghost of modernity, the ghost of the civil rights movement continues to do great, great harm to black folks. So I don't think that this conversation is pushing us back in any kind of way. I think that we all have our, our individual and collective concerns, but I think we're moving in the right direction. The young lady made a great point is that, you know, we, we don't want to spend too much time on the symptoms and the sicknesses that are associated with, with black existence in the United States. But certainly when you talk about the, the oppression of black folk and how we endure and how we experience what's being done to us, economics and education both go hand in hand, and what capitalism, late capitalism, has done to black folk is that it has destroyed us both economically and education. Anybody know with good sense that education is a gateway for black folk to amass um, wealth? You know, everybody's not a professional athlete, everybody doesn't make millions of dollars, and so on and so forth. So, we have to look at other ways and other avenues to continue to, to push our agenda forward, both economically and educationally speaking. But certainly, Kelly, and I'm done here, education is a political issue in the black community. And I'm hoping and praying that when we go to the polls in November to vote, we will keep both economics and education in mind, and along with health insurance, because those are the, the, the preeminent issues that we should be looking at uh, during these very, very difficult times in the pandemic 19 and, and the evil, the structural evil of Trumpism. I see you, caller. Uh, uh, Mr. Perry, let me come to you because you you, you are uh, uh, or were a, a principal uh, 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 and you were an athlete. And so you, you have both of those things that Dr. Adams speak of and the idea that a lot of people coming in, you know, are, are trying to make it into the league or do certain things and, and think that's the gateway out. But if you get hurt, as we both know, you get hurt and you don't have an education background, you out in the street. You're left. So uh, as, as opposed to talking about the symptoms, as, as uh, uh, Dr. Adams and, and Sharon was talking about, let's, let's look at solutions and, and understand the root cause is economic. How do we deal with that? Because most athletes, especially going into college, which we're going to talk to in a minute, most folks who are going into college, especially young black, are dealing with the economic system. And, and the NCAA is not necessarily friendly to us, except when they want to exploit us. 
Well, uh, being a former athlete, um, and you know, when, when when you have a dream, just like you know, all the panelists on here, whatever their dreams were um, growing up. Uh, one of my dreams was to be in the NBA. Uh, unfortunately for me, uh, when I was in the process, you know, I was blessed to get drafted by the Washington Bullets. But in the process of making that money, I blew out my left ankle. And uh, I, I think I heard one of the panelists was talking, I don't know if anybody ever mentioned mentoring our young people in school, uh, our, our athletes, and just to make sure that they have a plan outside of professional sports, to make sure that they have that there are other things that they can do. And my plan was to get my degree to make sure, you know, that I could take care of myself uh, if something happened. Even though my focus was on playing in the NBA, I had people around me who poured into me, who made sure that I uh, uh, was able to reach my goals. And I think it's important uh, because I'm also in the school system here in Prince George's County, and I go out of my way to talk to young men and women uh, who are talented athletically and even academically um, uh, uh, to make sure that they understand what their responsibilities are to themselves and to our community um, I, I, I agree with with uh, our panelists in terms of racism and economically. You mentioned NCAA. NCAA makes billions of dollars, and, and we all know the majority of those athletes are African-American boys and girls, um, um, uh, not just basketball, football as well. Um, and, and so I think just making sure that in our school system, even in our churches, uh, I'm, I'm a minister as well in, in, in my church, that we we are constantly having the opportunity and setting ourselves up to mentor, to talk to our young people, not when they're not, I'm not saying when they're 17 and 18, when, when they're five and six and seven. So when they get 16 and 17, we've built, someone mentioned relationships, and that is critical to our young people, relationships. I have relationships to this day from people when I was 16 and 15, and I was in, at Howard University with some of my professors and obviously all of my coaches, but I believe the relationships with our kids and even talking to their parents. I've met with parents of kids who have athletic ability to help them to navigate that process. And I think, you know, that's some of the things that have been missing uh, because a lot of times when, when you're in poverty and you don't have and you see the opportunity that people are taking advantage of you, uh, if you look at a young man such as LeBron James, um, whatever your feelings are about him as, in terms of as, as a person or an athlete, he had a single mom. It was his mentors who helped guide him, even though he didn't go to college. He will tell you, he will mention his, his coaches, some of his teachers, it was the mentors that helped guide him. And so um, we need to make sure that we're putting those things in place in our school systems and our uh, communities and that we're actively engaged with these young men and women at an early age and even in the middle stages when they're trying to make decisions because I don't know an 18 and 19-year-old kid if they have to make the decision on their own is not going to try and make a million dollars to play sports. I, I don't know of one. So they need guidance in doing those things. And so 
Um, I've been blessed in that. And so I try and give it back all the time the way it was given back to me. And so we have to be um, um, intentional uh, and, and talking to our young people at an early age, even in the middle, our high school kids. I have a high school granddaughter that I'm constantly talking to. So I think we have to be intentional in building relationships with, with these with, with our students, with our children, but also with their parents as well. Because my mother made the decision for me to go to Howard. I didn't make the decision. If I had made the decision because of my thinking at 18 years old, I was going to the University of UNC Charlotte or I was going to Iowa State. I was not coming to Howard until my mother stepped in. And I'm a mama's boy and I did what my mother told me to do, and I'm thankful <laughs> that I did that. Parents and mama's uh, boy. Let me go to Carla. Right. All right. Go, go ahead, right. Carla. You're on the air. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, how many thousands of uh, young players had to be expedient in order to produce one LeBron James or Kobe Bryant? Nobody never considered that. And as far as the was taught, you know, Missouri is a conservative state, a red state. And this Missouri state statute, as it applies to curriculum, textbooks, and other instructional material, it says, notwithstanding provision of Section 160514, the State Board of Education and the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education shall not be authorized to mandate and are expressly prohibited from mandating the curriculum, textbook, or other instructional material to be used in public schools. So that means that the parents in these school districts, that's their authority to put whatever they want for their children. And another thing, that state is a school choice state, which this president has pushed very, very hard to give parents the right to put their children where they want to have them. So that has to be has to be considered and respected. And you know, it just kind of disturbed me sometimes when I hear people uh, trying to persuade people how to vote. But you know, you can do that. But that's what it is. And here's another point: How is it that these Nigerians and Ghanaians from Africa, first and second and third generation, how is it that they perform so well not only in your schools? But also when it comes down to educational attainment and household income, they outperform whites and Asians. And they just as black as Wesley Snipe. Should they not be explored to see exactly how they do it? 40% of your male population on your Ivy League colleges are Nigerians. How do they do this? And, and you read article after article that black college students are overrepresented in low-paying majors. Now, I don't blame the student, but where they're coming from is not preparing them. Parents and the society seemingly don't give a care. Well, let me go to uh, uh, speaker. Thank you, caller. I appreciate you uh, calling and sharing your thoughts. Ask uh, that question about them Nigerians. Speaker Fire. well, you already did, so I'm just going to let him respond. Speaker Fireson, go ahead and, and uh, address that and, and talk to us about uh, – uh, just, just go ahead and respond to his, his comment. Well, thank you, Doug. I mean, first of all, I, I really wanted to revisit uh, uh, the notion of including parents uh, with uh, college-bound athletes. I, I, yeah. I uh, 
had a similar experience. I played Division One football at University of Nevada, Reno, and blew my knee out as well. But when the coaches came to talk to me to recruit me to go to college, uh, my mother, having had an older son and, and nephew that played at a higher level, had the wherewithal to pull the coach's side and explain to him, you are taking away my baby, my youngest, and I need assurance from you that you're going to be responsible and look out for him when he's hundreds of miles away. And they never forgot that. That was in 1988. To this day, that coach and my family are still in touch um, because my mom had the football. But I think that there needs to be uh, more effort at educating parents about what their kids are about to experience culturally and financially. Um, uh, we've talked, uh, you know, in, in recent years in particular about uh, how the NC2A has been able to benefit from the likeness of all these athletes. Uh, without uh, them being able to share in that. And, and I do firmly believe, uh, I, I, you know, my concern with how you do it, I think it's going to be something that needs to be discussed, but some of the wealth that's generated from this needs to be set aside at the very least so these athletes can finish their education uh, and, and have, you know, something to look forward to. Now, I was fortunate to not have brain injuries, but I had I got several surgeries on my knees and shoulders. And so, you know, I was chasing me, but that's about it. Well, I invested in that university, and, and, and they should be invested in my future just as well. So I, I do believe that there's work to be done. I think we need to include parents in that regard um, and, and make sure the parents are educated as well so that the, uh, I was a mom for just the same, and I was going to listen to my mother more than a lot of folks. So let's make sure that these parents uh, are given, uh, I think, an educational background on what the children are about to go through as well. You know, as for the Nigerian experience, you know, I think that's a, a whole nother show, Kelly. I mean, I think culturally uh, immigrants who come here, come here for different reasons and have different aspirations. Um, but looking within our own culture, I think that we need to focus on making sure that, that our children have goals that, that get them out of their situation, but that they have options so that if that one goal doesn't work out, that they're ready for plan B. Uh, when I had my surgery, and I will never forget this, it was Dr. Clarence Shields, who I believe was the professional sports doctor at the time uh, in the early 90s. And he said to me, I heard you're a pretty decent student, and maybe you should focus on that. And I was pissed off at Mitzvah when he said that. I was angry because I want to play football. Right. But I remembered that a couple of years later when it was time for me to let it go. Um, and it, it really encouraged and helped me uh, focus on what my next plan was going to be and that it wasn't all my eggs in one basket. Right. Jamie, let me let me uh, come to you and 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 have you chime in on that as well. Yeah, I think what I wanted to go back to was the curriculum piece, and and you know, for so long, there have been just a few voices deciding what gets put in front of our kids. Um, I think Texas is like the largest textbook producer. Um, I'm from Oklahoma, so you know we have a nice rivalry with Texas. Go Sooners, but. I, uh, that, that is frightening to think of the amount of black and brown students um, who are being um, miseducated uh, in addition to those that uh, we are not pouring enough resources into to actually, that are more so uneducated. But I think the, the idea of um, including diverse perspectives around curriculum and, and inviting our parents into the conversation, I think often what I've seen happen in especially low-income um, communities, um, parents are um, called when <laughs> there's a disciplinary issue, but they are not invited to the discussion when it comes to, um, you know, what courses 
should we offer? What, what would you like for your child to learn? Um, what are the strengths your child has? Let, let me get to know your child better by talking to you and having a relationship with you. We often feel like parents are a burden. And so then we, we also see because our parents have, some of our parents have not had good experiences because traditional schools have failed many of our parents as well, um, then they are not comfortable with um, sometimes, you know, you hear, oh, parents aren't showing up or parents don't care. Yes, they do. Parents care. Um, and so that's another manifestation of just how we failed. The institution of education has failed um, for generations, um, but we do the, we do the blaming. Um, and to our other panelists' uh, point, uh, we started just talking about the symptom um, and not getting to the root cause of what is, what is the reason why our parents don't feel like they, can, they are empowered to advocate for their kids around mm-hmm. what they're being taught. Um, and so, so I think that's, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't speak. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with the gentleman who said that the Nigerian piece is a whole other, another concept, but I, I feel like cricket yeah. is a place that we it's can really, dig in really, really hard on right now. Right. That's, that's like saying the Asians come here and anything else. Cher, um, talk to us about this, this, this the, the, the reality of, of what we were discussing um, or what we were leading up to with this conversation is this, this pipeline, this pipeline that goes into prison where we can't, get our kids to college because they get diverted to the, to the, to the, um, uh, 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 penal system, you know, mm-hmm. readdress, address that again for me, uh, that you were talking about it earlier, because I, I want to get that idea of stopping that threat. Like Sharon said, Sharon said, we're not talking about the, 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 the problem and the judge, but that for me one last time and, and, and succinctly, making the point of how we stop that and, and move forward beyond the SROs in the classroom. No, I think Sharon is correct. We have to talk about the economics. We have to talk about the, the poverty. We have to talk about the trauma that we know that our kids are experiencing in our neighborhoods uh, and in the home. So we have to talk about all of that. And what it really takes for me uh, Kelly Michael is we have to have a serious conversation about criminal justice reform. As I mentioned earlier, we can't talk about defunding. That's a, that's just a rallying cry. It has no meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, since 1829, I believe it was first Metropolitan Police. It's not going anywhere. But what we can do is reimagine how it is. Reimagine criminal justice, and as it relates specifically to schools. We have to talk about education from a holistic approach. And if SROs are a part of it, as they are here in North Carolina, we need to be in the conversation to talk about the educational process, not talk about the disciplinary process. Uh, Five years ago, uh, some of Durham schools were deemed by the federal uh, federal government for having a high suspension rate off the charts. We got a new superintendent, got a new sheriff, those numbers are dramatically reduced and will continue to go down because we are thinking differently about how we engage with our children, how we teach our children. And it is critically important that we bring the parents into this conversation or the grandparents into this conversation because we know a lot of our kids are being raised by grandparents. So we have got to get them to the table before I get, I get, I get them in the in, in the jail or in the right. squad room where they're being interviewed, right. and we can't wait. I think it was said earlier. We can't wait until they're 16, 17 years old. 
again, we have to have these conversations at three and five uh, uh, elementary school and have real conversations about life choices. Not about so let me good, do this. Bad, me, but life choices. Right. So let me go with 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 you, Sheriff, with with um, uh, um, Speaker Fireson, with Sharon. All of you are educators and, and have, have been in the education system at some point. Uh, Perry, uh, Jamie, and, and Dr. Adams, each one of you have been in this process. So I, w- I want to talk about the idea of the, the historical black or HBCU system uh, being established for us, you know, and then recognizing that a lot of our students are going away from the HBCUs, but then going to the PWCs, right, to where they can, you know, either for, for athletics, especially for athletics, primarily for athletics, but also for academics, and looking at the idea of what I, what I put out there saying, what if we uh, uh, talked about removing ourselves, you know, a, a quasi-NCAA uh, of HBCUs, where all the blue chippers, the five stars, are going to the HBCUs like uh, 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 Maker, oh, uh, what's, what's the kid's name? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Maker, mm-hmm. uh, here we go, yeah. Maker Maker. So he's committed to uh, uh, Howard University. Uh, uh, Jamie went to Howard, I believe. And then, of course, uh, uh, Bernard Perry went to Howard. Um, and then other uh, uh, blue chippers are now starting to go. Some, one's going up to uh, Morgan State. Another one's going out to, uh, I think, a FAMU and a few others. Talk to, uh, I'm going to come to you, Perry, on this one as a former athlete. Talk to me about the idea of them coming to these universities, because back in the day, this is where everyone went. You know, uh, they, they came to these universities because they couldn't get into the PWCs and they still made it to the league. But if we can if we can harness this talent, we can then create an economic wealth uh, stream, I believe, to the HBCUs, which then will also help them grow and then make them the powerhouse of receiving these huge endowments like all these PWCs do, you know, I think Howard is the, the, the top university. And I think it's endowment, it gets us 3 million a year. Whereas these other schools get a hundred or 50 or $30 million a year. And Howard being the top of all the HBCUs only gets 3 million a year. Uh, is that possible? Can we do that? And Jamie, I want you to follow up because of the system of structure, how that works. And then Sharon, I want to come to you. Well, well, I, I, I believe this kid, I had the opportunity to meet him, and, and I can't stress enough um, the, the, the importance that parents play. Uh, our coach, uh, Coach Blakeney, uh, has a relationship with his family. It's relational, um, and I believe the climate that we're in uh, with the racism that's going on, um, you call out a few kids. There are a couple of other blue chip kids who are considering HBCUs, not just basketball, but football that have signed. Uh, We have Deion Sanders, who is now Jackson State's football coach, and you've had kids who have already decided to transfer from the bigger schools to go to Jackson State. Um, I I believe it's a – I don't think it's just a fad. I think it's going to be something that's – going to continue. Um, They're just going to look at the success of this kid. And right now it's going to be difficult because we're in COVID. Uh, But but I believe it's it's happening to a lot of HBCUs, but I believe he's probably the marquee player. But other HBCUs have gotten five-star athletes on football, 
basketball as well. And so I, I don't think it's a one-time thing. I don't think it's right. I right. think it's something that's going to be ongoing, and it's just going to bring a, more attention to these universities from a marketing standpoint, from a recruiting, not just for athletes, but for students, students. as well. Exactly. Uh, I think it's something that's going to continue. It's just once we get them, we got to make sure that we have the resources to maintain those type of athletes, those just like we do academically. We have to make sure that we can maintain for those students who are gifted academically, the ones that we're giving academic scholarships to. So uh, we're excited. I'm excited not just for Howard, but for Jackson State or right, North right. Carolina a and right. I'm excited for all the HB for Morgan State. Right. They got a couple of kids that are going up there. And so it's, it's going to change the landscape of college athletics uh, because just like you said, back in the day, uh, that's, we that's where everybody was going. And right. so I believe that's where we're headed. And we just got to be able to maintain it with our resources. As, as, and I believe it's relational. I still believe it comes down to going to that house. I think like um, uh, one of the other panelists said, being able to talk to that mom or that dad or that grandma is to kind of pull everything be. together. So I'm excited about it, man. I really am. Jamie, how do we do it economically? Wow, that, that's a tough one. I was, I was going to speak on, I think it starts before that, um, Kelly, with messages. I think, you know, a kid doesn't, you know, fill out the college application, um, you know, with a, with a blank slate about what they think about colleges and which universities are good universities versus the ones that aren't so good. And I think those messages, the messages around anti-blackness have been real and powerful for a very long time. And so we have to start very early countering that with the positive messages about who we are as a people um, so that we don't feel like our, so that our students don't feel like an HBCU is, um, you know, plan B. It should be the top plan because um, of not only what it can, it can compete with um, uh, uh, predominantly white universities and colleges, but because it is the place where we can pour into us and have generational impact um, right. because of that. So economically, I think it's going to take um, one, the messages and the, and, and the realization that we, um, what we have is just as powerful and just as important. And that in doing that, as others follow those who are making that decision, we're able to, um, you know, see success, turn that success into pouring into and reinvesting in that success um, and being able to just multiply that. Um, that, that's where I, I think we, we also have to just start with being able to show examples, you know, in schools for a long time, all we did was show examples of, you know, the great um, black leaders who, who, were, who were dead and gone, who like definitely we should know who they are, but there's so many living models of excellence that our kids have to know they're doing things right now that our kids can emulate to and that are, are graduating from these great, you know, HBCUs. And Sharon, if, if we if we do that, do, do you see and do you think um, as a professor yourself that the dollars will come, that we can attain and we can attract the media, that we can attract the people because we have the athletes and we have the academic uh, infrastructure? Right. So whenever I think about uh, forecasting for the future, I like to look at the past. And in the past, we have had success, success in this area, particularly when we were coming out of slavery. And we look at people like Mary McLeod Bethune or Booker T. Uh, Washington, both former slaves. What they were able to accomplish was just uh, nothing short of, of a miracle. 
So we do have the wherewithal now. We have much more resources today. And in fact, when you consider the athletes, some of these athletes that are going to be going and uh, become uh, NBA players are parents who themselves were also NBA players. So like LeBron James has a son who is an up-and-comer, and so does Wayne Wayne has a son who's up-and-comer. And we, and we have um, Black Hollywood. We have a whole black middle class that we did not have when Mary McLeod Bethune or Booker T. Washington were establishing Tuskegee um, University. So, yes, I believe that this is a perfect storm. This is a time for this to happen. I think so, too. Sheriff, I mean, Sheriff, uh, Speaker Fireson, um, are there are there policies out there or is there measures that we can take or that can be given so that we can have these HBCUs uh, uh, better uh, economic and financial support? Um, or is it just a matter of the enrollment and then trying to get dollars from boosters and, I mean, from uh, alumni and, and other as, other areas? How can we do this in a, in a policy matter? Well, look, look, I, I think we can always help from a policy perspective, making it easier. It's incredibly difficult to contribute to education these days. Uh, there are all kinds of loopholes that make it much more difficult. Uh, but I also want to be careful not to depend on folks from the outside for what I believe that we can provide for our community. So, um, you know, I, I think the more that alumni, even if it is, if, if it's lower amounts, it doesn't have to be a million dollar endowment, but even if uh, alumni uh, are, are encouraged and, and, and incentivized uh, to provide more support so that we can eventually have more scholarships accessible, I, I think a lot, a lot more athletes that want to uh, go to an HBCU than the scholarships are available to provide for them. So uh, I, I think the more that we engage, you know, with our alumni. Uh, and it doesn't have to be alumni. There are plenty of folks that are, are supportive of HBCUs uh, that aren't alumni. Uh, I, I think we can start. We have to start somewhere um, and then develop, I think, not only uh, money for uh, athletes to be able to get scholarships, but also to be able to continue to uh, hire and retain uh, quality coaches. Not, not every HBCU is going to be, be able to get a standard. Um, and so I, I think those are the things that matter. Those those are the coaches that know to connect with parents, that assure parents that they're going to take care of their children. Uh, those are the athletes that, that come and have a sense of pride um, in an HBCU where uh, many of us would otherwise go somewhere just because we got a scholarship. So you know, I think it's a collective of all of those things. Uh, but there are certainly policies uh, that would make it easier to, 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 to contribute uh, to, to, to education efforts, uh, but we, we can't be overly dependent on that. So in the last few minutes that we have, I want to go ahead, Perry. Is that Perry? Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just to touch on the economic piece of 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 of, of the sports aspect of things. If, if if you look at it, what what could happen, and 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 what I'm hoping happens to these these HBCU. When you go to the first round of the NCAA, your school is guaranteed. A certain amount. You get in the the the, 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 the top eight school is guaranteed money. You get into the the, the the sweet top four. You win it. You, you're guaranteed millions of dollars for your school. And if you're constantly going, though, that's the that that also can help you economic athletically for for professors. Right? If you look at a, a program of Duke, even though Duke has an outstanding educational program, but when people think of Duke University, the first thing most people think of is the basketball, the basketball program. program. Right. They're constantly
consistently in the NCAA Final Four winning championships. They bring so much money into their university. And so I'm hoping that this will happen to the HBCUs and particularly my own alma mater, Howard University. But for the HBCUs, I believe that can be part of the economic impact for these universities when you start getting these uh, top-tier athletes into right. the school. Right. Uh, um, hey, Mike, can I jump in here real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just real quick. Um, and I put a comment in the chat about HBCUs, colleges, and universities have to be intentional about developing funding sources. I, re- I remember reading an article maybe maybe four years ago, five years ago, or maybe longer, Dr. Dre gave a lot of money to uh, uh, a white institution, can't remember the name, but he was asked in that article, why did you not give this money to a Howard or to a North Carolina Central or to an HBCU? He simply said, no one asked. We have to be intentional about developing those relationships and asking. And, and, and we can't miss that point. And so we've got millionaire entertainers and athletes. Right. We have to ask to them, but we also have to build a product. I've been an adjunct professor at North Carolina Central University, Eagle Pride. Uh, I teach on the community college level, uh, have done so for a number of years. So we cannot leave out our community colleges either because everyone is built to succeed at a four-year institution. So we've got to talk about how do we uh, direct our young men and women who are not the uh, four-star, five-star athletes to community colleges where they can still get that educational foundation. Uh, And we have to be intentional at that level as well. Just wanted to jump in there. No problem. I want to go to uh, uh, Darvin, uh, Dr. Adams, real quick here because uh, we're we, we winding down, but I got to get to some current events and some current issues. I was going to talk to you about the, about the, uh, the, the education, Darvin, because you, you're strong sure. in that. Sure. But you're from Kentucky, man, and we got to deal with this, this boy that you got in Kentucky and, and what needs to happen to him. Uh, because in the primaries, you guys had one polling place for 600,000 voters in Jefferson County and, and Louisville, which was absolutely stupid and ridiculous. And then for this man to come out and say that, oh, well, we mailed ballots to everybody. We wanted to make sure we were inclusive, and then we're going to shut that down, and we're not going to do it again. What's happening there? Because black folks are being disenfranchised. You got Breonna Taylor. They're just the, the whole uh, 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 lies that were told by the attorney general uh, about the ballistics and everything else, if the New York Times is to be believed, that their own state, your own Kentucky state, said that, the uh, Kenny, the, the boyfriend, did not shoot the police officer. So now, if that's the truth, that breaks the whole narrative. So collectively about in our, the voting that you guys have to do there and get rid of that jackass that's in there as, as, as a, 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 what's his name, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell? Mitch, uh, Mitch McConnell, yeah. yeah. That's right. I, I'm going to say it again, people. Forgive me, but he's a jackass. So how do we get rid of him and what do we do? Again, um, I... One of my favorite words is holistic. I, I tend to look at things, especially the experiences of, 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 of black people in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Kentucky is not a state. It's a Commonwealth. And I, I promise you, Kelly, the wealth is not common. Okay. Oh, I, I know and, it ain't. So I know I, it is. No, 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 no. So what that means is for, for the fact that voter suppression is still a very, very real reality for us in Kentucky, various forms, various ways. The way they treat you, the way they look at you, the the decrease in number of places that you can vote, the number of candidates that are and are not on the ballot, 
whereas our issues are concerned, uh, uh, along with the Breonna Taylor fiasco, which is just really, really, uh, uh, again, a very hurtful, very harmful thing for black folk and, 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 and people in Jefferson County. They're still, they're still protesting. They're, they're still uh, going against the system and the streets and so on and so forth. And, and so it all ties into this notion, Kelly, that, 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 that as black people, we got work to do. And it doesn't really matter to me what your favorite thing is or what you like to do or what your favorite conversation is. I think if we're going to survive and thrive throughout these perilous times of of bad politics, police brutality, racism, poverty, classism, patriarchy, so on and so forth, educational deficiencies, we're going to have to be committed, Kelly, to doing it well. And so, again, economics and education, they go hand in hand. And I think that whether it's a historical black college and university or a liberal arts college in, in, in the western part of Kentucky or an all-white school, an all-black school, for me it doesn't really matter, Kelly. I just think we need to make a commitment to being educated, period. We need to make a commitment to starting a degree program and finishing a degree program. We need to make a commitment to the black community, to black culture, the black church, black youth black elderly, black politics, black economics. We need to make sure, now I'm not saying be racist, I'm saying make sure that we are supporting the issues and the initiatives continue to affect our people. If you like it, baby, I love it. But make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and make sure that it is blackened, blackened for the point of helping our people. There is a myriad a, a plethora, a number, a mnemonic fatality of things that are hampering black folk in the United States in 2020, just as they did in 1920, just as they did in 1820. The point is that we must make a point to go against injustice. Like John Lewis, let's get into good trouble. Stand up for something. Unite people. Be aware. New programs, funding. We must be committed to being educated and we must be committed to establishing a firmer foundation of black economics in our country, Kelly. Absolutely. We must be committed to being black and staying black. Yes, sir. Um, By uh, all uh, means. Uh, uh, Speaker Fireson, uh, you got a whole bunch going on in Nevada. You got people coming to Nevada uh, against COVID regulations. You got, no, not people. You got a test tube baby that comes up in there and defies every state law that you have, like he can do something like that, and, and then, like, it's no big deal, and infecting your whole state and community. Uh, talk to me about your state. How is it working, and, and what will be the outcome come November? Well, we, we have a president who has been on the attack. I think what's most important is that uh, we not be afraid of standing up for the right thing. We not be afraid of recognizing that we have a responsibility here in Nevada, not only for our own citizens, but uh, for, for our, our visitors who go back home to their state. So we're going to continue to do the right thing. We're going to continue to encourage and require social distancing and mask wearing, uh, limitations on crowds. We have to continue to do that. Um, you know, I, I think that many of us have PTSD from four years ago and are concerned, and we should be concerned. We cannot take it for granted. Uh, we see what they've already done and continue to do to the courts. Um, I believe that we will have a change in the administration uh, come November. Uh, here in Nevada, we expanded access to the polls to make sure that everybody could vote by mail, by drop-off, or in person, so that they didn't have to risk their lives in order to, to participate in the electoral process. 
Uh, and we're going to continue to advance policies on social justice, making it clear we banned the chokehold. Uh, we, we made it clear that you can record police in the course of their duties. Uh, I believe that we have to have collaborative, open communication with our community stakeholders about social justice. And I think law enforcement clearly has to be at the table and get buy-in. Uh, we can't legislate morals and values, uh, but we can create an atmosphere where police are recruited and trained to recognize these challenges incorporated in how they do their job. They are professionals, and we, we should give them the tools that they need and then hold them accountable as professionals. And that's what we're doing here in Nevada. I think we need to do it across the country. Most importantly, we need to show up and show out uh, here um, in the November election. Uh, and then I think we can get back to work once we have some, uh, I think, responsible statesmanship in the White House. And I also want to acknowledge uh, uh, Speaker Firestein as uh, at, at one point earlier last year, uh, Nevada was the only state with both African-American speaker and African-American uh, Senate uh, president, uh, one of only two states that ever did that. That was Nevada and Colorado. So I want to acknowledge that as well, uh, as well. Sharon, uh, California is a blue state, but, but uh, you know, it, it has its pockets. And quite honestly, some of those pockets in the uh, in Congress need to be uh, eradicated. And 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 what are you guys doing there? Because I know that there's some suppression going on even in California. What what's happening there? That's right. Yeah. So yes, it, there is voter suppression in California. And even though California has a reputation for being a liberal state, that liberalness is limited to the to Los Angeles County and San Francisco area. But the vast majority of the state. Is, is a red state. So um, what we've been doing here is, is working hard. Mostly my work is limited to the progressive movement, getting people to vote for Joe Biden. Believe it or not, there are a lot of progressives here in Southern California who do not want to vote for Joe Biden. We need to understand hmm. the danger that Trump presents Oh, and, and come together and vote for Joe Biden. So, so, so that's the effort that's going on here in California. And, and let, 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 let me say, say something uh, to, to the progressives, not necessarily to, to you personally, but to the progressive itself. I need to understand, and, and maybe you can answer that question. And I, um, help me understand why what, what you guys are hearing is is the the radio broadcast. It's going to go through a countdown, but it will still record and play, so we're we're fine. But help me understand why there's so much animus against Biden compared to Trump. Now I can understand why you may not want to vote for Biden, but what I don't understand is why you're questioning not voting for Biden and leaving Trump in, given that what he's already done given the courts, especially given the courts, and even this pandemic. Okay, briefly, can you, can you tell me over that, tell me about that over the, the, the talk, uh, the minutes that you're going to hear from the, from the uh, radio broadcast? Yeah, so most of the progressives that are vehemently against Joe Biden, they are not uh, supporters of Trump. Right, but they're not going to vote. They mostly, yes, but they mostly come from privilege. So they will not experience the the kinds of treatment that black and brown people get. So what I'm seeing for the most part are young people of privilege who are taking a, a um, unwavering stand. They want they wanted Bernie. I wanted Bernie. Mm-hmm. But I'm not willing to give up my vote 
and have just one more vote go to Trump. Right. I will not exactly. be a snowflake in that avalanche. I will not be a part of that. Right, exactly. So, uh, 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 Jamie, let me come come to you and and ask you. Uh, I I didn't I didn't call you on for the current events and, and politics, but certainly we we have to address it and deal with it. Um, uh, how do you see this uh, impacting? Or well, let me ask you this way: the students that you that you uh, deal with and you talk to, how are they thinking about this election? How are they seeing things happening, especially with the the uh, Black Lives Matter protests and the things happening? What's going through their minds and what are they saying? Well, obviously there's a lot of disappointment and, and pain and re-traumatization, um, but there's a lot of empowerment as well, students recognizing their own power to do something about it. Um, students have been eager to protest, have been eager to um, talk about doing things differently, have been eager to just lift their voices so that they're heard. I think the work we have to do um, I remember this in 2016, so many, um, this is when I was at Paul, so many of our black and brown students were fearful when he was uh, elected um, and did not understand uh, <laughs> how someone could lose the majority vote but still be the president. Um, so there's still some more education we have to do. But I would say our students are extremely um, aware. Social media has definitely um, uh, been a tipping point there so that the information yeah. that they have in their hands is just incredible, um, and they're getting used to, to, to letting their voices be heard and using that as a medium as well. Um, and so they just have access to so much information and um, to so many people who can be models for them around what activism can look like, whether it's creatively through spoken word or um, other kind of artistic forms or um, – you know, really actually getting out of the streets. So we, you know, try to, our teachers are trying to right. make sure they, they understand there is a pandemic. So we have to be safe about what we're doing um, and trying right. to do some things virtually. But, um, but I would say there's a mix. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of frustration, um, misunder- you know, not understanding uh, why things are the way they are, um, but still also a lot of, a lot of hope um, that they can do something to make things different um, and they're motivated to do so. Good. Sheriff. Uh, as we as we close out every show, we always ask, "What's at stake? What's at stake for us, socially, economically, and politically?" And and you in North Carolina, you guys have a battle going on for uh, Tom Tillis' seat. You got a battle going on for just your 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 position as sheriff. Eight new black sheriffs in North Carolina, uh, first time uh, in the history that the the eight of you were elected. One was reelected, I believe. Uh, uh, two women, first time sheriffs. Uh, one reelected. And and then the the state tried to take away your powers because you're all black. They tried to reduce your pay because the state legislature is run by uh, Republicans, but you have a Democratic governor now. So talk to us about what's at stake and, and all that's going on as, as brief as you can, but as powerful as you can. Let us know what's at stake for, for African-Americans uh, across the country, but right there in North Carolina. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, Kelly, Michael, you've heard me say this before. Our life is at stake. And we've seen this play out over the past few months with this pandemic and what this uh, White House administration is doing and how they are defying the science, uh, defying the scientists, and holding these rallies and putting these these false narratives, our lives are at stake. And here in North Carolina, uh, we've been attacked. Uh, The eight uh, African-American sheriffs who were elected in 2018, along with myself, uh, represent the largest urban centers across North Carolina. 
Uh, we represent the most influential political centers in North Carolina. Uh, so to say they were pissed would be an understatement. So we're standing, we're standing together. Uh, so I, I'll sum it up by saying um, what I ran on as sheriff is what we have to do as law enforcement to really create uh, this reform that we are pushing for. And all eight of us here in North Carolina are pushing for this. And that's transparency, engagement, and accountability. If we don't put that back in the profession of law enforcement, we're doomed. We've lost community trust. We've lost the ability to for uh, people in black and brown neighborhoods to talk to us, build those relationships to help us combat crime. You know I'm a student of Sir Robert Peel. Right. At least other community, community or the police. It takes all of us. Police by and large, 18,000 agencies across the country. A lot of good men and women put on the badge every single day. We have to identify the bad ones. We have to hold them accountable. We have to prosecute them when they break the law. And that's the way we start rebuilding trust and, and really creating uh, criminal justice reform and building community. My final word, vote. Mr. Perry, I want to thank you for joining me again, my brother. What's at stake for us? I echo uh, what the sheriff just said. Uh, not only uh, our lives, but our grandkids and our children. Um, economically, uh, for for African American people, our health care, uh, educational systems uh, across the country. Um, I have challenged my entire family, and I come from a large family, making sure all my nieces and nephews vote who are old enough to vote. I'm, I'm, I'm making sure my wife and I are engaged in, in, in getting even some, making sure seniors get out and vote uh, uh, as much as we can. Uh, we cannot afford another four years of Trump administration. I'm we just cannot afford it. Yeah, yeah, we can. Uh, Jamie, let me come back to you. What's at stake? Oh, everything. <laughs> um, generational hope. Uh, our ex- pure existence and I think humanity is at stake. Um, I think there's um, a generation uh, at this point that is ready to do something uh, different, something we've never done before. Um, and, I, and I'm ready to, to just allow our young people to lead the way in this and for us to support them. Um, it's, it's time. Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot at stake. <laughs> Darvin, Dr. Adams, what's at stake for us? Well, Kelly, I'm assuming that you asked the question of what's at stake. I'm, 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 I'm guesstimating that you understand that, that something of value, something of importance certainly is at stake. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat what the young lady before me just said. I think our existence as black people, uh, the body of Jesus Christ, the black church, the community, I think our entire existence, holistically speaking, is at stake, not only with this upcoming election, but but in terms of what will go on with us in our communities over the next one to five to ten years, I think it's of the utmost importance that, that we pay close attention to our environment, pay close attention to our communities and our neighborhoods. Most importantly, I think we must pay close attention to the direction of racism and call it for what it is, structural evil, damaging, harmful, unnecessary harm done to black folks, innocent black folks. I think we need to be stronger than ever. I also believe there's a theoretical middle ground between Minister Malcolm L. Al-Shabazz X 
and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., especially where black poverty is concerned. There are some prophets out there. There are some preachers who are not concerned about prosperity but are actually concerned about the present-day status of black people without worshiping the images of money, our livelihood, our existence, our future, our children, our grandchildren, Kelly, everything is at stake in this upcoming election and the few years to come. Sharon, what's at stake for us, dear? Well, our immediate existential threat is that we have a president who's indicated that he is not supporting a peaceful transfer of power. He has no, he's not. To perhaps 18,000 law enforcement people. He's already indicated, well, we already know that he doesn't respect the law. He paid $750 in taxes um, in 2016 and and less and zero taxes in ten out of the last 15 years. So unless we have a huge landslide on November the 3rd, um, there's no telling wh- what can happen. So what's at stake is, is truly, we're, we're truly in crisis. We must have a landslide. Thank you, Thank you. Uh, I agree with what everyone before me has said, but the only thing that I'll say in addition to that is democracy as we know it is at stake. Uh, we are at a pivotal fork in the road where we can stop the momentum of hate and the kind of destructive rhetoric that's uh, going to leave us much worse off the generation. Uh, now is the time to stop it and stop the momentum, send a message that we have to be statesmen, we have to return to democracy, we have to make sure that every voice is heard and valued, um, and, and all of that is going to be dictated by what happens this November. I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Speaker uh, 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 Jason Fireson. I want to thank Professor Sharon Kyle. I want to thank uh, Mr. Bernard Perry. I want to thank uh, Jamie uh, uh, Dunham. I want to thank uh, Sheriff Burkhead. And also I want to take, uh, thank Dr. Uh, um, um, Adams. Dr. Uh, uh, Love you. Thank you, man. Uh, uh, De- uh, Darvin Adams. Dr. Darvin Adams out of thank Kentucky. You. And then also I want to thank you. Uh, especially you who come in and join us and, and, and hang out with us uh, for this session this time, because as, as some of the comments here uh, of the panelists are, they, they appreciate the discussion, they've liked the discussion, and I thank you and thank them for the discussion. But what's at stake for us right now is exactly what each and every one of them said. It's our livelihood, it's our democracy, it's our foundation, but we have to think of it as Dar- uh, Professor uh, Dr. Adams said. <laughs> our blackness and everything about us being black is at stake right now. And everything that we do and how we do it, why we do it, where it's coming from is at stake. I need you to think about it back if you were back in 1920, 1960, 1980. I mean, the reality of it is that we're in 2020 and we're still facing and dealing with the same things we dealt with 50, 60, 100 years ago. We're still having the same fight. We're still fighting for the right to vote. It's 2020. So you can only imagine what can happen under another four years of this test tube baby. I've said it before. I'll say it again. He's a threat to us. He's a threat to all of us, black, white, yellow, and brown. But you always know that it affects us worse than anybody else. It's time for the black reset. You've seen that hashtag. I want you to start hashtagging it out, tweeting it out, Instagramming it out, Facebook it out. Hashtag the black reset. It's time for us to reset as a community, as a culture, as a people. 
and we have to do so, as I said earlier in my opening. We have to buy up 100 acres, 200 acres. We have to get with friends and family and buy land, build our own communities, and do what we got to do. But short of that, we got to make sure we vote. And not just vote and go back home, but we got to vote and go to the city council meeting. We have to vote and go to the state legislator meeting. We got to vote and go to the congressional meetings. We have to vote because we got to make sure the policies that get put in place don't impact and affect us. And not only that, we got to make sure we respond to the census. Because that census is going to determine what state legislatures are able to do with the $850 billion that are going to come to our communities from 2021 to 2030. Those 10 years is going to be money coming into our communities, and we got to make sure we get that money. If we don't respond to the census, when someone knocks on your door, open the door and say, what do you want? I'm checking to see if you did your census. No, I didn't. Here's my name. Here's how many people live in a house. This is what you got to do. It must be done. There's no time for BSing. There's no time for jacking off. There's no time for playing around. Ain't no time for Xbox. It's time to get serious about what's real. 35 days from now, there's going to be a reality check. And you got to ask yourself, what's your reality? Are you going to deal with what we've dealt with the last four years? Or are you going to make a change and fight for it? The other thing I'm going to tell you is get your guns. You better go out and buy some guns. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Buy your guns. Even if you don't want to, buy your guns. Because guess what? They're going to have theirs. And when the shooting starts, you might be in your house, but as we found out in Kentucky, bullets go through walls. So get your guns. Do the black reset. I want you, if you're going to join me, I want you to hash, not hashtag, I want you to go, I want you to text TBR. The Black Reset, TBR, lowercase TBR, choose zero, TBR 20, space, first name, space, last name, and space email, to text it to 59769. So I want you to text TBR 20, a space, your first name, a space, your last name, and a space, your email address to 59769. We're about to do a national outlet of the Black Reset because on November 3rd, it's about us. I want to thank my guests. Thanks for joining me again. I want to make sure that uh, everyone understands the Black Reset is happening now. We have to reset the narrative. We have to reset the, the discussion. We have to reset the policies. We got to reset the education. We got to reset the economic system. We have to reset it so we can take advantage of it. And we have to yes, reset sir. so that we are not forgotten. The Black That's Reset, T-H-E-B-L-A-C-K-R-E-S-E-T, the Black Reset at 59769. Give me your first name, your last name, and your email address with spaces in between and BTR, TBR20 tonight. Do it right now. Text it to us, and we'll see you next week as I'm going to have probably – the Democrat, the Republican um, director of the North Carolina, uh, um, what is it, the North Carolina Republican Party? Who? That's going to be a doozy for them, boy. <laughs> I can't wait. But again, I want to thank all my guests for joining us. I want to thank you for joining us. And like I say, anytime, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And uh, hey, let's get out there and let's make sure we vote. As I said, November yes, 3rd. It's about us. It's-
Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.